La spinage au la bouchon, si grec de pote bello, si rakish pakaleto, chilatula tilatua. Hello, I'll welcome back to the American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, and in this episode, I'll be finishing up uh, one of the two volumes uh, by uh, uh, published by the Library of America about uh, collecting James Edgy's writing. Uh, this is basically a book mostly of his film writings, but we also have here at the end about 75 pages or so of of just different selected journalism, stuff he wrote from the 30s and really up until the end of World War II. Um, some, some interesting stuff, but not, uh, uh, you know, maybe not must-read uh, material. But just in the hopes of, be, of, of completeness, I will, I'll talk a little bit about these articles. I do think there are some kind of relevant things to mention here, especially in some of the longer um, kind of investigative reports that he did for Fortune magazine. Um, most of these things were published either in Fortune magazine or in time we basically have three little subsections here one is the uh, three longer essays he wrote for for fortune one on the tennessee valley authority one on orchids and one on cockfighting um they seem kind of not really relevant especially the cockfighting and orchid thing but i think he's got an interesting perspective on them then we have a bunch of book reviews he wrote for time they're of kind of mixed interest there's there's one i want to talk a little bit more about and then we have a series of articles for a time he wrote at the end of World War II, um, dealing with uh, the home front, Europe, uh, and d- different questions about, uh, you know, what America's position was at the end of the war in, in the world, at home, and, and what the post-war world might look like, or what are the challenges facing the post-war world. Post-war world. Uh, so the first of these is, is maybe the most significant of of all these essays and articles, all this journalism, uh, I think for for kind of kind of in, in, in the richness and kind of the thematic um, issues it deals with, um, maybe the most historically significant, and that is his his article on the Tennessee Valley Authority. Bear in mind, he wrote this very very early in the history of the Tennessee Valley Authority itself. Uh, right in, in 1933. Of course, as you probably know, the Tennessee Valley Authority was a new New Deal program. Uh, implemented early on in the New Deal, part of that first phase of the New Deal, which had the goal of really uh, creating a government-run, basically a a government-funded and started corporation that would provide electricity to much of the South by, you know, creating dams, flood control, things like that throughout throughout the whole Tennessee Valley system. It was a major example of kind of New Deal uh, infrastructure development, right? And, you know, I think it's still around. I think it's still, a, you know, one of these these federally seeded corporations. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things that go into this. I mean, AGI is of really of kind of divided mind about the, the significance of it. On the, one, on the one hand, he's impressed by its size, its ambition, the changes it's bringing, the you know, just the, the, the massive size of it, the massive size of the project is something 
he thinks it's quite amazing. And, but it's also something that's going to change the South. And of course, this is a part of the world he's from, Achi's from. It's um, actually one reason that I think Fortune sent him here. Later on, Fortune, this was 1933, right? Later on, Fortune would send him to do the ritual reporting that would lead to Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, of course. That was originally started by Fortune magazine before it was published in a book. Um, so he was kind of of the area, so he knew the local area. Um, and I think the main argument here is that the Tennessee Valley Authority is bringing something that's kind of unprecedented to this area, uh, both in kind of federal, like as a federal invasion, a, a corporate invasion, something, a huge institution that had never before existed in this area, right? And that was going to be profoundly disruptive. And not just kind of politically and economically, but also ecologically. He writes here about the ecology. Quote, but here is the other side of the picture. Careless fires and unregulated cutting have ruined and are ruining great strands of timber on watersheds where trees should have stood forever. Because natural resources, which should have sustained local industries indefinitely, have been chipped away in crude form and exhausted. Whole communities have been and are being pauperized, abandoned. When the forest is no more, where the farms are steep, where the land is light and the copper fumes wander, vast acreages of farmland are rapidly being totally laid waste by erosion. The wastelands descend unimpeded into the river solely but surely to choke the channels and to fill the great natural reservoirs that cannot be replaced. Scarcely under control and highly capricious in its flow, the Tennessee River floods the bottomlands and does an estimated $1.7 million of damage each year and adds it's more than bite to the springtime disorders of Mississippi. The rivers are poorly developed for, for navigation. Its power possibilities have scarcely been touched. And of course, this is the kind of thing that gets used to justify these, these kind of projects all the time, right? It's like the disorder of the dams. That's certainly the case in China, where you have these kind of disorderly rivers, Yellow River to the Yangtze. So you put in a dam, you regulate it, and you, by doing that, you transform kind of the natural ecology but create a certain stability for, for humanity. Um, now, I don't think Adji has had kind of the broader ecological vision to question what the long-term impact of the Tennessee Valley Authority would be, but he does paint a picture of kind of, 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 a, of a disrupted and, and, uh, and unstable ecology that they're entering into. And ecolo or or, sorry, um, um, economically, you have that same kind of picture of, of, of prosperity next to kind of poverty and, uh, you know, backwardness with modernity. There's, there's kind of a, a contradictory nature. And so this is the milieu then in which the Tennessee Valley Authority enters in. He calls this, this is the laboratory for good experiment. These are the raw materials, good and ill, from which the TVA prepares to fashion a civilization, which in a certain important way is new and significant to all the U.S., so he spends the first half of the essay really kind of painting the picture of the Tennessee Valley for, for the readers in Fortune, who mostly had never been there or, or really know, just hear, about in the, just hear about the project in the news. So I think that alone makes this article kind of rather useful for, for the readers at the time. And then he kind of goes through what the project hopes to do uh, in terms of navigation, flooding, and power generation, those being the main goals of it. But I think where he really you know, begins to suggest how this is really going to change things more fundamentally is when he starts to talk about the institutions behind it, just the power 
of the federal government and this massive corporation with all this capital, right, that it basically can do things that no local investors, no local capitalists, no local developers could could do, right? And, uh, you know, of course, throughout the New Deal, there's going to be a lot of this, especially in World War II. This is going to be bigger where federal money just begins to dominate whole regions of the country more and more. The West would have its own narrative with this, especially during World War Two. But ultimately, this is still like an experiment in its early stages. So that's that's kind of what this article is trying to do is just give Fortune magazine readers uh, a window into the world in which the Tennessee Valley Authority is going to be going to be operating. But ultimately, it's going to be transformative ecologically in terms of the people and the economy and in the power structures in the in the area. So the next two essays uh, included in this collection are one are on cockfighting and the other on orchards. These seem to be very different things, and obviously they are. But I think um, now cock, the cockfighting article was written in 1834, also in Fortune, and the commercial orchid article was written in 1935 in Fortune. So, but they're both kind of deal with a similar question, and that is kind of an unknown but vibrant and uh, subculture. Right, um, the orchid one's doing more, I think, with the economics of the Great Depression and how that's impacting orchid growing and that culture and how it's surviving this this trauma of the Great Depression, which is of course having a big impact on everyone, but especially on on businesses, you know, in non-essential, I guess, making non-essential products. The cockfighting cock one is the I think the more more interesting for me of these two. Um, because he really kind of digs into this, you know, it's, it's kind of semi-legal or quasi-legal, like, you know, basically cockfighting was legal, but illegal. But um, you still had a pretty strong local tradition with its own customs and rules and, and honor system that really couldn't be contested. Um, so just if you're interested in kind of bottom-up social organization, I think the cockfighting article shows you how... You know, things can exist without the institutions of legality behind it. It's even got magazines, which I didn't like. Written Steel, Feathered Warrior, Knights of the Pit, and Gamefowl. These are actual magazines. Circulation of 25,000 copies a month devoted just to, to cockfighting. Um, and I think what's great about this essay is just how he gets into the local traditions and the sense of honor that exists among among the people who raise the the birds and he thinks even among the birds themselves um but as for the members he writes quote like the members of a secret order too these sportsmen have their unwritten code of honor nothing unites them but their common passion and the peril of the law they sign no legal contracts they give no tokens of good faith none are needed their bets are made verbally and paid without question they expect no trickery in the pit for the game gamecock fights eager to the finish without aid or urging and such prearranged decisions as grace the prize ring and the track are next to impossible the cocking clan has also its high moral purpose its value of the game cock is an example of ideal courage they'd love to quote the speech of Thermistocles made to his athenian army in 480 on the way to salinas um, and then but i think edgy goes even deeper and, and is kind of impressed by the by the courage of the birds, who of course are they're fighting for the, to the death, right? And they fight with this kind of fearlessness. 
Um, but really, kind of a really beautiful window into something I, you know, I don't approve of it. I, I think, you know, in an animal rights perspective, it's pretty horrific. But in the sense of a of a, of a cultural phenomenon and, and a vibrant culture existing under, you know, under their legality, you know, under this veil of illegality, um, but you know, but but quite alive. Right. It, it's kind of a similar story with the U.S. Orchid article, the U.S. Commercial Orchid ar- article. But there it's much more about the eco- economics of it and how you have, uh, you know, a million orchids being sold a year. So quite expensive, you know, ranging from 75 cents to up to 12 dollars for certain orchids. But just how many people get involved in it? Right. And, and how it, it's kind of a, a more of a democratic thing, but it's under threat of big business. Um, quote, the story in brief is simple. In 1929, big business got hold of a good commodity, which was nevertheless untouched by any save the most tentative and erratic business methods and took just those large, if obvious advantages of it that any gentleman who knows this business would be bound to take. For one thing, the orchid has known only localized distribution. Big business gave its national distribution for another the orchid has never known promotion big business promoted mary hell out of it end quote you know i'm kind of reminded of of maybe how big business has sort of gotten into marijuana uh you know how that was something that for a brief moment a very very brief moment in history was somewhat a democratic thing where you had many many producers in some places legally in many places illegally engaged in the growing of marijuana and you know not long after it was you know increasingly legalized in many states it becomes big business and and now you even have like former speaker of the house right boehner deeply involved in the big business of of marijuana production so he's got that so unlike cockfighting which remains a little bit more pure and and, and democratic and grassrooted partially because it's illegal orchid production sort of got taken over by by big business, um, but there's still the the small producers, and I think that's where Adji is most most interested in. Um, ultimately, though, th- this is an industry under deep strain of the Great Depression. So, um, a lot of interesting things going on in that article. Together, all three of these the the Orchid one, the Tennessee Valley Authority one, and the cockfighting one just really good examples of investigative journalism um, performed by by Adji. That I think speak to some of his values and his interest in in democracy. So next we have book reviews. How many are there? Eight, eight book reviews, all published from 1940 to 1943 in Time magazine. Mostly before he was writing the book reviews for Time, but a few overlap. So he was writing book reviews for Time before he got into the movie review stuff. Um, you know, most of these books, none of these books I've read. I mean, I can tell you what they are. Um, After Many a Summer Dies in the Swan by Aldous Huxley. The Hamlet by Faulkner. Uh, William Carlos Williams in the Money. Gertrude Stein's Ida. Uh, Virginia Woolf's Between the Acts. That's her last book. Um, Those are all fiction. Well, Williams, obviously, poetry. Uh, Then we have, like... uh, a couple or three uh, nonfiction books. Uh, one of Harry Levin's James Joyce, which is sort of a guide to Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses. Of course, I, I think 
Joyce was rather popular at the time. Um, sometime in the 30s, maybe it was the late 20s, maybe it was the 30s, Ulysses was um, kind of taken off the banned book list in the United States. It used to be banned for kind of indecency and, or whatever, but, you know, it was, you know, it's a hard book. It's a good fun book. I do, do urge you to read it once in your life if you haven't. I have a lot of fun. I, I, I used to read it, you know, every year or so, but I stopped doing it. It takes too much time, you know. But uh, the, it seems like this book is, a, is an interesting guide to it. I don't, there's probably better ones now, so um, unless you're really interested in, like, literary criticism on Joyce scholarship, I don't think there's much reason to read this. Um, there's, then there's one called uh, The Dream Department uh, by J.S. Perlman. I guess that's a novel, too. Um, so, yeah, there's just the two nonfiction books. But the, the one I really want to focus on and, and think about a little bit, again, I, ha I haven't read it, but it sounds like it's kind of interesting uh, and controversial. It's Hugh Leonson Fawcett's Walt Whitman, Poet of Democracy. Let me just read from some of the, the review so you can get a sense of what this is. It's basically about Walt Whitman's sexuality. And, and how that interfered with or contributed to Walt Whitman's kind of literary goal of being the poet of, of democracy. Um, quote, this compact, brilliant, critical biography is one, an excellent life of Walt Whit Whitman, a just, if merciless, evaluation of him as poet, mystic, and prophet of democracy. Three, an arduous, provocative sermon on the nature and responsibility of democracy and of art. Unlike most Walt Whitman critics, Author Fawcett avoids the extremes of most books about Whitman. He neither damns nor admires Whitman for being a homosexual. He does not claim that Whitman's poetry is as great as Homer's or merely free verse Sears, Roebuck's catalog. He tries simply to explain what Whitman achieved in poetry and mysticism and what he failed to achieve and why. Critic Fawcett's thesis is simple. If Whitman was a great poet, it was his business to fulfill the responsibilities of one. If he was an evangelist of democracy, it was his business to write a true, not heretical gospel. In Fawcett's opinion, Whitman never quite succeeded in being either poet or evangelist. He wrote some great poetry and some amazing energetic verse, but on the whole, he shrank from such responsibilities as he was equipped to recognize. He perceived a great number of democratic half-truths. Half -truths. He lacked the intellectual equipment or spiritual stamina to make the whole half-truth whole. Reason? Whitman, the man, was never really whole. And then this gets into bisexuality. Now, I don't know a damn thing about Whitman's sexuality. I mean, I've heard things, but, you know, I, I've never even really read Whitman very much. It's actually one of the first volumes published by Library of America, though. The second or third was uh, Whitman's poetry. Obviously important for America, but, um, you know, especially the Civil War era the poet of democracy's crisis in some ways. But it seems like that this criticism, this critical examination of Whitman is, is interesting in, in kind of seeing him conflicted between poetic greatness and what that means and then being essentially a propagandist for, for American democracy and what that means and, and how you really couldn't be both. And uh, needless to say, Adji really liked this particular... Um, take on, on Whitman. So, again, if you're, it's written back in 1942, um, but if you're interested in Whitman, it might be worth checking out that book, or at least uh, Adji's review of it. So that's all I'll say about the book reviews. 
Um, I don't really know what it's kind of like. I don't. I didn't know really know what to say about film. I I don't know what to say about book reviews either. It's like, you know, a lot of what I do in this podcast is I talk about books and my feelings about them. I'm you know, to read a book review is kind of, you know, what what to say. You know, it's kind of like how I feel a lot of the movie reviews too. Maybe if we had more of them, we could get, I could start to kind of get a sense of Aggie's kind of literary values, the way we start to get a sense of his film values. But I don't know. I prefer looking at like the text, the, the full text originally, um, than than reading book reviews. Book reviews are something you read when you don't want to read, want you know, read the book actually. Uh, at least that's how I feel with nonfiction book reviews. It's like there's so many books published every year. You read the book reviews so you don't have to read the the original original book. If you're interested in the book, you know what. What good does a review do for you? I, I don't know. I guess help you sell, right? That's, I guess, their function. Get people interested in the book. Um, that said, I think all of these reviews do that job. At least they, they'll present these books as, as interesting of having something to say. Um, the final four little works of journalism here, they're all quite short. Um, covered just about 10 pages or so. Um, deal really with the peace and the end of war. They're all written in um, the second half of 1945, well, from April to November 1945 anyways, and deal with different aspects of the, the end of the war. The first is the U.S. at war, a soldier died today. It's just a little column about Roosevelt's death and the impact Roosevelt's death had on various places where the U.S. Army was. Uh, he mentions, there's just little vignettes like Chongqing, where U.S. soldiers were in China, Okinawa, uh, a Cleveland barbershop, um, Washington, you know, just uh, the grief, the, the, the feeling of uncertainty with the death of, of Roosevelt. So the soldier who dies is, is none other than Roosevelt. He gets that actually from, a, from a, well, I'll read it where he gets it from. It was the same through that evening and the next night, or the next day and night, the darkened restaurants, the shuttered nightclubs, the hand-lettered signs in the windows of stores, closed out of reverence for FDR, the unbroken 85-hour dirge of the nation's radio, the typical tributes of um, typical Americans in the death notice columns of their newspapers, said one signed by Samuel and Al Gordon, a soldier died today. So that's where he gets the title from, but it's a nice little column uh, that's kind of a, not an obituary of, of FDR, but a uh, a respect for the admiration and love that that Roosevelt had among the American people and the soldiers, and and the the feelings that that came from the the loss of, of that man. Um, the second is the second little column. Um, these are all in time. If I didn't mention that, they're all in time. Was is August twentieth, nineteen forty five, called Victory the Peace, and this is uh, you know obviously after Japan surrendered. And a lot of it's about the uncertainty. In fact, I think the next three all deal with kind of the uncertainty of U.S. leadership and what is the U.S. place in this post-war world um, where the U.S. has kind of been thrust into global leadership and whether it really wants it or deserves it or, or, or do other people really want this American leadership. Um, there, there's a lot of uncertainty in these little columns. He writes, for instance, in this one, uh, with the controlled splitting of the atom, humanity, already profoundly perplexed and disunified, was brought inescapably into a new age in which all thoughts and things were split and far from controlled. As most men realized, the first atomic bomb was a mere pregnant threat 
a mere infinitesimal promise. All thoughts and things were split. The sudden achievement of victory was a mercy to the Japanese, no less than to the United Nations, but mercy born of a ruthless force beyond anything in human chronicle. The race had been won. The weapon had been used by those to whom civilization could best hope to depend. But the demonstration of power against living creatures instead of dead matter created a bottomless wound in the living conscience, conscience of a race. Um, now he's writing this just two weeks after the atomic bombs were dropped and, and not long after the surrender. So it's, it's a, a real question mark about the morality and, and the impact and what, you know, what is good and evil? And what does uh, mean in the post-nuclear uh, time? And how does it just change everything? All the plans for the post-war world. What do they even matter when you have the bomb? To quote Adji here, the bomb rendered all decisions made so far at Yalta and at Potsdam mere trivial dams across tributary rivulets. When the bomb split open the universe and revealed the prospect of infinitely extraordinary, it also revealed the oldest, simplest, commonest, most neglected, and most important of all facts, that each man is eternally and above all else responsible for his own soul. And in the terrible words, words of the psalmist, that no man may deliver his brothers nor make agreement unto God for him. Um, so... It's it's a very bittersweet, you know, act, you know, fairly pessimistic look at the peace, um, brought at the cost of of shattering, you know, expectations and and our, even our ability to plan for, for what the future might be. Um, so it's a good one, a good kind of discussion of the bomb. Um, the next essay, October nineteen forty five, again for time, uh, was is called Europe autumn story and this is about post-war europe and america's place in post-war europe and it really focuses on the trauma of europeans after the war They're, how they've moved around the, the millions dead the disrupted states the disrupted economies the, the their, their desperate need for help right? you can actually see um a, a calling in here for for u.s leadership in the continent which would come with nato and come with the Marshall Plan and these things later on, but also, you know, this growing divide between, you know, the Soviet Union and the West. He's already kind of predicting the Cold War almost. Um, quote, the totalitarian socialists, by far the most astute professionals in the field, move towards their goal by methods which equally disturb scoundrels and honorable men. The democratic socialists maintaining that full liberty and full security can be combined and making enduring were embarrassed by their new responsibilities in Britain and by the problems of relative inefficiency which confront all Democrats. Um, you know, basically, he's, he's got a little bit more optimism for the socialists kind of to, to solve these problems of post-war Europe. Um, but, you know, what ultimately the question is, what is America's role in this going to be? Um, America relatively untouched by the war in contrast to Europe. And even gets into how there's like respect for the United States, but also kind of anger and distrust and, and, a, and a bit fear about the place of the United States in it. All these articles, I think, are really good snapshots of just like the feelings of, of the time towards the end of the war. You know, whether it's the, the sorrow over the death of FDR or the, just the, the questions about the atomic bomb or the uncertainty about Europe's place. Um, the final one is called The Nation, Democratic Vistas, written in November 1945. And this is 
uh, kind of a nice parallel with the Europe one. This is about the home front, though, right? So, you know, he looked at Europe first and then like a month later wrote a little column about, um, about the U.S. And he goes through all the challenges that the U.S. is facing, right? He even starts out with like some of the the human stories, the the loss of life of the war, the music that was popular at the time. Um, but clearly, the post-war world is being born. And, and what are its, you know, what are the challenges economically? What are the challenges for uh, in, in terms of labor activism that's going to be emerging? What what dreams that people kind of bring from the war into the post-war world, how are they going to become real or are they going to be disappointed? Uh, these are some of the questions Angie has. Uh, he writes, in its own quiet way, it was a period of madly chaotic and relatively unscathed U.S. as in the shattered rest of the world. Nobody seemed able to see much beyond the end of his nose. Businesses tossed on the greatest wave of labor unrest since the middle 30s. Vast numbers of ex-war workers, some unwilling and some unable to live on reduced post-war wages, floated along on war savings or on unemployment compensation, while in vast numbers, jobs were begging. Veterans, too, wasted time to rest up and to enjoy themselves and to get readjusted. Many were jealous of the high wages paid in wartime. So there's that, that kind of uncertainty about, you know, just what are we going to do? It's kind of like that, that movie, uh, The Best Years of Our Life, right? Just the... The question, what do we even do with our life now that the war's over and that that project is done? Uh, he talks a little bit more about the atom bomb and also like the end of American isolationism. And so this essay is really about how America, how America changed. So um, my overall thoughts about these, what is it? 15 little articles, mostly book reviews. Half of these are little book reviews, but uh, there's some good stuff here. Uh, they're worth I just at least glancing at if you if you're interested in Adji and his and his works. Um, but um, not too much else to say. I think maybe the Tennessee Valley Authority one and the post-war series of, of articles are are, are are the most compelling here. But I really like the cockfighting article as well um, for its its kind of window into a subculture that I didn't think much about or know much about. So that'll be it for now. Um, next episode, next recording I'm going to do will be the beginning of a four-part series on Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Um, basically, I'm, I'm thinking of eight episodes about the next volume of Veggie's writing, four about Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, uh, one on Morning Watch, which is a very, very, it's a novella, really, 60 pages. Um, I think it's his first kind of book-length work of fiction. Then Death on the Family, that's what he won the Pulitzer Prize for. I think posthumously, maybe. Um, that's be two episodes, and then we got three short stories. So we'll look at not, Let Us Now Appraise Famous Men and his fiction writing uh, in, the next, in the next handful of episodes. So we're jumping into the second half of this study of, of James Adji. I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to talking about Let Us Now Praise famous men a bit intimidated i think it's a it's a difficult work it's a challenging work but um really worth digesting i, I wish there was a, a accessible audiobook version because it's the kind of book that you want to kind of read aloud or or listen to maybe uh, maybe i'll find one maybe i'll be able to find one i don't know 
it's, it's kind of a work of modernism, but it's also a work of, of reportage. It's a, it's a window into the life of poor sharecropping families, but it's also a window into Adji's own values and his own guilt and his own kind of anxiety about his whole role as a commentator about other people. It's great stuff. It's really a wonderful book. So, uh, yeah, I'll be talking about that next time. Also be talking about, uh, I guess, Walker Evans photos, which are also a big part of that book. Um, so that's good for now. I'll, I'll see you next time. Uh, thanks for, for listening. J'ai notre seule de mine, j'ai notre seule cantine. Je le sais trop ça vite, je l'attends à la toile.